So uh, 34th U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower, before he was president, he was a five-star general in the U.S. Army who served as, this was his title, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in Europe. Pretty impressive title. Before that, much before that, he was a 10-year-old boy living in Abilene, Kansas with his family. And on one particular Halloween night, his parents had agreed to let his two older brothers go out trick-or-treating on their own without parental supervision. But Dwight was not allowed to go. His parents said he was too young to go uh, without adult supervision. And so, of course, you know what probably happened after that. He begged and he pleaded and he whined and opined to, to let him go out with his brothers to go uh, with his freedom out on the streets to trick-or-treat. But his parents held their ground, refused to change their minds. And as he watched his brothers go off into the night, it crushed him. And being filled with rage, Dwight headed to the yard and he started to punch the apple tree. And he pummeled the bark until his fist started to bleed. After a few minutes, his father pulled him off the tree and sent him upstairs. And Dwight went upstairs sobbing, and he felt like the whole world was against him. After about an hour, Dwight's mother came up to his room to check on him and to bind his wounds. And as she sat in the rocking chair, she began to talk to young Dwight about his anger. And she quoted to him uh, from the book of Proverbs. And she said, Dwight, he that conquers his soul is greater than he that conquers and takes a city. And as Eisenhower's mother bound up his wounds and as his anger calmed, he came to realize that his pointless anger and his resentment at his brothers and at his parents, it changed nothing. And only himself was hurt, right? He had bloody knuckles. Some 70 years later, Eisenhower looked back to that moment, to that day, as one of the most important moments in his entire life. See, it was at that time that he realized, for maybe the first time, that he had things inside himself that needed to change. And if he was going to amount to anything as a man, he was going to have to fight for his soul, which was an even greater war than the world war he would go on to fight as a man. And some might argue that because he diligently fought the internal war, he was a qualified and capable uh, commander of the army in World War II. See, today in our passage, James is going to bring us to the front lines of the battle that wages on inside of our soul. He's going to tell us that inside our passions are at war and left to their own, it leads to a life of turmoil and collateral damage. And so the question that James is going to face us with is, will we live a life of pride and destruction? Or by grace, will we live a life of humility and exaltation? Our sermon is divided into two halves today. James is going to give us insight into the source of our struggle. And he's also going to tell us the solution to our struggle so that we can live the life of peace and grace that God intends for us. So let's look at verse 1 together and we'll have the words on the screen. James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You, desi you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
James wastes no time cutting right to the chase, getting to the root, getting to the source of our struggle. And he's going to frame the conversation by looking at divisive infighting that had had started to stir up among the early church that was threatening the uh, unity and love of the family of God. Now, James isn't speaking hypothetically like there could come a day when there's this infighting. No, he's dealing with things that are actually going on in the community. I mean, think back to some of the things he's already addressed in his letter. He's talked about prejudice and evil discrimination that has started to creep up, whether that be racism or classism or sexism. He declares all of them evil in the face of, of, uh, in, in light of Scripture. He talked about bitterness and envy and selfish ambition that had started to create dividing lines among the community. He talked about how they would praise God with their lips in one moment and they would issue out cursings and hatred another moment. Now the words he uses for fighting quarreling are very strong words. If you knew Greek and you spoke that language, you would hear those words and you'd go, man, that seems really intense. He talks about quarreling and fighting and murder. Now, he's probably not actually talking about people actually killing each other. That would have probably opened up a whole nother discussion. He's likely talking about disagreements that have metastasized into harsh words and judgmental language, unfair criticism, and slander. But that, let me say this, that doesn't mean that Christians should never disagree. We're, we're going to disagree on things. We're going to land in different places. Sometimes we really do need to hash things out, and that's Okay. But when we do disagree, when we do hash things out, no matter what, we have to disagree in love, seasoned with grace and humility. But James is using this strong language. He is using this this language of physical violence and murder to drive home the seriousness of what he's talking about. I mean, think about it this way. Isn't the same kind of hatred that's in heated verbal disputes and discrimination the same kind of hatred that eventually grows into the physical violence and killing and murder? It's the same substance, but left alone, it grows and it festers and it becomes this bigger thing and it escalates. See, infighting, whether it's physical or verbal, can have deadly, catastrophic effects. And so James is saying, what is causing all of this? And as he does, as he uses this this example, he gives insight into the broader human nature, and it's profound. He says that inside all of us, there's an internal struggle, a war between conflicting passions and desires, and those, those, uh, those desires are driven by our pride. What James is saying is our struggle, not just the actual fights, but any struggle, any battle that we have with sin, it's a battle that is fundamentally waging inside our hearts. It's happening at the soul level. See, by the time you see it externally, the battle has actually been lost internally. James unpacks this for us. Listen to the progression of James. There's a progression of frustration and disappointment. So he begins by talking about these passions, right? Passions are simply the fact that we have preference for some things over another. Some like opera music and some like hip-hop, right? Some people like both, right? It's It's a preference for something. But that preference, that passion, begins to create a desire. And those desires start to occupy your thoughts, 
and the need begins to intensify. Now that desire eventually grows into a demand. And it becomes something that you feel like you have to have, right? And it's not mere I have a preference, but now it's, no, no, I have to have this. It's a demand now. And demands have this ability to turn your wants into needs, don't they? You start to say, no, no, I have to have it. It's not merely something I want anymore. It's become a need. I need it to feel complete. Well, then you know how it goes. That perceived need creates an entitlement. And that creates an expectation, not only that you want it, but that you need it, but now you deserve it. You have to have it. And everybody and everything had better play to you getting that thing. And nothing should stand in your way. At that point, we begin to to control situations and people around us to ensure that we get what we want. Do you feel it increasing? Do you feel the tension mounting? And when we don't get it, our unmet expectations lead to disappointment and anger. And in our anger, in the insanity of it, we do things that we never thought we were capable of, right? Have you ever done something in your anger and once you had finally cooled off, you thought, I I didn't know what I was thinking. Well, yeah, you know why? Because you weren't thinking, right? At that moment, you were certifiably insane, right? You weren't thinking clearly. You were doing things that are actually contrary to your normal everyday character. But we've let it build up. And what's happening is our passions are being fueled by a self Will determination to get what we want, no matter the cost and no matter the fallout. Now, let me remind you, James is writing to Christians. He's not writing to, he's not out street preaching to people and being like, look at how you are. He's writing this to the family of God. He's saying, this happens with you, family. This happens with us. It happens to me. We're not exempt from the battle against sin. Yes, in Christ, we receive a new nature. But until our redemption is complete, we will battle against our sin. In fact, before Christ, our battle against sin was futile, right? You may have won some small victories here or there, but before Christ, sin cannot be defeated. You may win a fight here or there, but apart from Christ, you can never win the war against sin because it's power and mastery over you is insurmountable. You don't have the power to overcome it on your own. But in Christ, we have the power to fight against our sin. That's why there's a war inside because we have these disordered passions. We know what is right and we know what is wrong and that's where the conflict is happening. And it's because of our disordered passions. We have this tendency to take good things and make them ultimate things, right? Let me unpack this a little bit. So instead of taking these good gifts from God and enjoying them in their proper time and in their proper place, we look to them to be our source of comfort. We look to them to be our source of power, our security, and our control. We infer, we, we, we put so much more meaning on them, so much more weight on them than they were never intended to give. 
And when one of these disordered passions is threatened by someone or something, that progression that James walked us through begins. And we start to work to deal with whatever is getting in our way, whatever is keeping us from enjoying the thing that we feel we have to have. And our disordered loves creates disordered lives. We will overreach, we will overextend, and we will knock over people and things that are in our way. I'm not saying that wanting a promotion and the accompanying salary is wrong. There's nothing wrong with wanting a vacation after a long year of work. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be loved and accepted by those you love and respect. There's nothing wrong with making plans and wanting them to go your way. Nothing absolutely wrong with any of those things. It's not the initial desire or the preference that's wrong. It's the intensity of the desire, and it's when you feel like you have to have it. It's when you cannot make the category distinction between a gift and a right. When you feel like you have to have something, when you feel like you're owed something, that's where the problem goes wrong. John Calvin said it this way, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. Does that make sense? So let's take that promotion at work, for example. It's a fine thing to want. But let me ask you this. Why do you want it? See, the why is so much, uh, it, it is so important, right? It, is it simply because you've worked hard and you deserve it? Or is it because you feel you need it to be validated and valuable? There's a massive di difference between those two things. Do you want that promotion because of the perceived power and influence it will give you? Is it so that you can finally control situations and circumstances around you? Will that promotion afford you a life of pleasure that you feel entitled to? See, these diagnostic questions are trying to get at the idols at the heart level that lurk beneath the surface that enable us to transform good things like a job promotion into evil things, ultimate things. Well, let me take marriage, for example. Being married and having lifelong companionship is a really good gift from God. But the question is, why do you want it? Is it because it's a good gift to be cherished from God? If so, great. It is a good gift. Enjoy it. Or is it because you long to be accepted and desired by someone else? Are you longing for somebody so that you'll finally not feel like a nobody? See, that's taking a good thing, like marriage, and trying to make it do something it was never designed or intended or, for that matter, capable of doing. See, when you give something that much significance, there's nothing you won't do to get it. When you feel like somebody is going to be your source of identity, then nothing can stand in your way to get it. Why? Because you have to become somebody, and so you're willing to do anything to get it. Your need for approval, comfort, security, and control are not wrong. God made you to need those things. At the same time, it's wrong to look to other things besides God to fulfill those things. See, God made you with those needs, and he, he is the one who is capable and willing and able to fulfill those things. See, there's an interesting experiment that's been done with male butterflies during mating season. Hang with me. 
Yep. So what they do is they take a male and a female butterfly, the same species, and they put them in, you know, a little um, housing unit. And alongside the male and the female, they take a painted cardboard cutout that resembles a female. Now, they make the cardboard one bigger, okay? And therefore, to a butterfly, it's more attractive. The male butterfly will insistently try to mate with the cardboard cutout. Now, before you go elbowing all the men in the room, even though it's lifeless, and even though the nearby female is flapping her wings going, buddy, I'm right here. Even though the cardboard cutout is lifeless, the male will be distracted by the decoy. Remember, this is an illustration not just for the men in the room. This is an illustration for all of us. Because all of us are distracted by cardboard cutouts in this world. We're looking to all sorts of other things to provide the completion and the satisfaction that we all long for. And because we, re- and because we chase decoys, we live dissatisfied and frustrated lives. So what we've done is we've essentially rejected the security of God's power, the wisdom and benevolence of his control, the satisfaction of his comfort, and the joy of his approval for cardboard cutouts. Simply put, we often prefer the pride of our own frustration and our own efforts than the joy on the path of grace and humility that's offered to us. See, verse 6 tells us that God opposes the proud. If we will continue to do things our own way, you will find opposition and frustration. We have disordered passions and our self-determined desires are rooted in our pride. See, our deeply rooted pride drives us to determine for ourselves where we're going to find comfort. To determine for ourselves where we're going to find security, where we're going to find peace. We want to determine for ourselves what is good and desirable instead of looking to God to determine those things for us. And when that happens, we desire the wrong things and we have an inordinate amount of desire for good things. James tells us our desires will stay unmet because in our pride we don't look to God. We have removed him completely from the equation. And so James even says, he says, you don't have because you don't ask God. Our pride drives us to do things our own way on our own timetable instead of submitting and coming to God to do things his way and according to his timing. James also tells us that when we finally do come and ask God, our prayers are compromised by our frenzied desires and we treat God like a cosmic vending machine. See, we're not coming to God to ask him, hey, God, according to your will, according to your good for me, will you fulfill this longing that I have? No, no. We come to God with the answer already in mind. God, give me this thing. Isn't that what you do when you come up to a vending machine? You're not asking the vending machine what's best. You come to it and say, I've determined what's best. I want G7. And you put in your quarters or you swipe your card and you push the buttons. And oftentimes that's our prayer life. We are coming to God and putting the quarters in and punching the buttons, trying to get things out of God. But guess what? God in his infinite grace and love to you will not be treated like a vending machine. See, James says it's not because he doesn't hear us. He feels us poking around. He knows what we're doing. 
But in his love, he is not going to give us the frenzied desires of our uh, unthoughtful whims. He's going to give us what he knows that we actually need. Tim Keller says it this way. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knows. Isn't that brilliant? God's going, look, if what you want is exactly what I know you need, yes and amen, it's yours. But if what you're asking for is not what is best for you, I'm not going to give it. He's like a good parent, right? When my kids ask for things that would harm them, I say, no, it will harm you. I'm going to give you what you actually need. And if I know how to do that, and I am a sinful, wretched man, how much more does a loving and perfect father give us exactly what we want, despite what we ask? See, it's not that God doesn't hear our prayers. It says that we don't receive when we turn our prayer into a manipulation tactic. God in his love says, I'll give you better than what you're asking. James says our struggle against our sin is soul deep. It's happening in the soul. Our unfulfilled, prideful desires are going to war inside of us. And when they surface externally, they cause damage to ourselves and they cause damage to those around us. Look at the next couple verses with me. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So far, James has addressed his readers as brothers and sisters. And now things kind of take a turn, doesn't it? He says, you adulterers. It's abrupt. It's harsh. It's meant to be a wake-up call. It's meant to go, hey, I haven't committed adultery. See, our sin is not casual flirting. We like to, to reduce it down to, hey, man, isn't it just harmful flirting? But it's nothing short, James tells us, a full-fledged adultery. See, James is tapping into this massive theme that happens all throughout scriptures where our relationship with God is described and pictured like the way a husband loves his wife. Spiritually speaking, God is our husband and we, the church, are his bride. And when we sin against him, it's the equivalent of spiritual adultery. Did you know God yearns jealously for his people? The same way that a husband rightly yearns for the love of his wife, for her affection, for her loyalty. Now, of course, there's an unrighteous kind of jealousy that we traffic in all the time when we overly want something that's not rightly ours. But for a husband to yearn for his wife and for a wife to yearn for her husband, that's a righteous kind of jealousy. That's right and good. There's a righteous jealousy among lovers, isn't there? But when we mix loyalties, when we love something more than God, when, when we compromise and threaten the purity and the intimacy and the relationship with our God, it's spiritual adultery. James goes on to offer another illustration. He says, did you know that friendship with the world is like becoming an enmity? It's like making yourself an en enemy with the Lord? Now, when you hear the word friendship, you have to realize in this context, friendship is not mere acquaintances like we often reduce the word today. 
Friendship in this context is a deeply rooted, close-knit, friends-like family kind of friendship. And what James is saying is that um, uh, uh, in this context, the word world refers to anything that is opposed to God's rule and reign, anything that is opposed to him, like the evil and the discrimination that James has already talked about. And so he's saying when we buddy up with the world, when we become loyal to the world and its demands, it's like we are becoming an enemy with the Lord. To be loyal to, friends with, partial to evil is to make yourself an enemy of God. What James is saying is you can't have both. You can't play both sides of the fence. James is saying you have to choose. You can either be a faithful bride to Christ, you can either be a friend of God, or you can attach yourself to the world and be a spiritual adulterer and an enemy. You can't have both. It's one or the other. Now, oftentimes when we think of adultery, we think about something that's loud and flagrant and in the open. This doesn't have to be loud, overt, in-your-face adultery where you publicly disavow your relationship with God. We can commit this kind of spiritual adultery in a thousand different ways. I find that we're often more influenced by the political party platforms of our day than by the word of God. We define beauty by what Hollywood says is beautiful instead of what God's word tells us. We define truth by our favorite news outlet. We define goodness by the cultural tide. We enjoy quiet, sinful pleasures in the privacy of our homes. And we never address the pride and the false allegiances that remain quietly hidden, tucked away in our hearts. And James is telling us it is corrosive, it is destructive, and it will destroy your relationship with God. We cannot continue to coddle and cultivate sin in our lives and still insist that we're living a life that pleases God. We have to repent. That's just a a, a Christian word that means to turn away from sin and turn towards God. For some in here today, you need to do that for the very first time in your life. There's never actually been this moment where you have called sin what it is and, 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 and rejected it as evil and corrosive as the cancer that is rotting your soul away and turned towards God and humility and grace. You need to stop pretending. You need to admit your pride and you need to ask God for forgiveness. And he will not turn you away. We'll see that here in just a moment. For others who who have done that, you need to realize that the Christian life is one of continual repentance. You need to stop playing fast and loose with God and determine to live a life of faithfulness. Family, his grace is abundant. He's more forgiving than you can even comprehend. But hear me, God will tolerate no rival. He won't be reduced to the mistress. Now, having unpacked the source of our struggle, which is deeply rooted pride fueled by self-determined passions, James gives us the solution. Look what he says in verse six. But he gives more grace. Can we just read that again? He gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. See, the solution to our struggle is the fact, the reality, the gospel that God gives grace to the humble. In fact, in the Greek, the way it literally reads is that God gives greater grace. His supply is more than our need. Now, at, fact, at first glance, that idea of a jealous God who rightly demands our exclusive allegiance might sound terrifying and daunting. But remember, that truth is tempered by the fact that God is a God of merciful and abundant grace. He is the God who is himself love, and he supplies all that we need to meet his all-encompassing demands. Augustine said it really well. He said, God gives what he demands, right? He, what he demands, God gives in abundance. So there's no need or situation that you are facing that undermines or exhausts his provision of grace. That's why Paul could write in Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where you have great sin, there is greater grace. John Blanchard, an old Puritan, wrote it this way. He said, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, guess what? There's sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there's overwhelming grace. You don't have a need that he can't meet. Grace is like Niagara Falls. Each year, billions upon billions of gallons pour over the fall and spill over, exceeding the needs below. In fact, one artist uh, painted this beautiful picture of Niagara Falls and failed to give his painting a title. And when he had submitted it, the uh, exhibition gallery needed to come up with a title. And here's the title they came up with, More to Follow. Right? That's God's grace. There is more to follow. Whatever you think you have right now, guess what? Billions upon billions of grace is coming over the banks and it's on its way. That's God's grace. So if you find yourself repeatedly falling into the same sin over and over and the shame is too much to bear, guess what? He gives more grace. Has your self-worth depleted and you can barely stand and look at yourself in the mirror? He gives more grace. Does your pride make it hard even right now to hear the words coming out of my mouth? He gives more grace. Has your life not worked out the way that you had planned? Don't fear. He gives more grace. Do you wonder where your next dollar is going to come from so that you can pay the bills that are stacking up? He gives more grace. Do you have all you could ever need and want, and it still feels like it's not enough. He gives more grace. In the bitter throes of divorce, in the tireless rat race, in the midst of disease and death, there's always more grace. There's more to follow. That's his grace. That is what is being offered to us, and it's an amazing gift. So how do we respond to that kind of gift? James tells us that we have to repent of pride and submit to God and to humility. So what is humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just simply thinking of yourself less often. It's not self-pity. Humility is not low self-esteem. It's merely thinking of yourself less often. It's removing yourself from the center of your universe 
in putting God at the center and letting him organize the world around you. It's taking the supreme focus off of yourself, taking the attention off of yourself because you know you are supremely confident in your own worth because God is the one who names you and loves you and is giving you all the worth and value you could ever need or want. It's this realization that God is taking care of the circumstances in your life better than you ever could. See, humility is not lack of confidence. It's not this woe is me kind of mentality. It's simply a confidence that's not based in your own performance or how well you can convince other people that you really are somebody. No, no, no. It's a bedrock confidence that your worth and value in life is grounded in God himself. And when you believe that, you don't feel the need to put others down so that you can feel lifted up. When you believe that, you don't feel the need to put yourself down so that other people can lift you up. You feel stable and sure because God is your firm foundation and you can stand on him. Humility means you can face your problems without having to validate and defend everything that you say. The humble person can own your shortcomings and start to really begin to actually work on them. When you're humble, you don't feel like you have to position yourself. You don't feel like you have to prove yourself. You don't have to constantly point out other people's faults. You can rest knowing that God will work it out in his timing. And if by grace you are invited into that process to help people work on their shortcomings, you can speak truth and love and be an agent of encouragement and strength. Humility means you, in conflict, you seek to figure out what you've done wrong and be the person who pursues reconciliation and extends first forgiveness. It means you don't throw a cold shoulder or a pity party. You can receive criticism. And when you do, you can find the truth in what's being said among the thorns and the bones and work on that thing that is actually true instead of putting all of your energy into turning down the things that they got wrong. Humility means you understand the difference between major points and minor points. That one stung when I wrote that. I have a hard time with that. You're winsome, and people enjoy real, honest conversations with you. You take your wins with gratitude, and you admit when someone else has made a better argument than you. You seek to serve and lift up others so they can experience what it feels like to be loved and accepted. Humility means that you're gracious to other people because you know ultimately without the grace and mercy of God, you would just be a simple wretch. That's humility. His grace is a gift that the proud reject and the humble receive. See, the proud hate to receive help anyway, right? Even though the great gift is offered to them, they go, no, 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 I'm gonna do things my own way. The kind of humility that I just described is not something that on your own you can conjure up. It's a gift that comes from the God of grace himself to those who ask. See, those who want that kind of humility, God will give you the kind of grace that begins to uproot the pride in your life so that that life of humility starts to be lived out. And that's why the next sentence says, submit yourselves to God. There's that word. Submit. 
Can we just be honest? We hate that word, don't we? Right? We hate that word. It's like nails on the chalkboard, but there it is, right there in the text. I know it comes with a lot of baggage, but instead of rejecting it, let's just redeem it. Let's talk about what it means to actually submit to that kind of God, the kind of God who, who gives us the, grif- the gift of his grace. See, if we stand on the outer banks of pride, we'll never receive the greater grace and the life of humility that's offered to us. See, you've got two ways to live. Either you're going to determine to do it on your own, which is essentially pride, right? I did it my way. That's the song of the pride, of the prideful. My life, my way. Or you can submit to God and say, God, my life, your way. It's one or the other. See, submitting to God means we recognize that he is infinitely wise, he's infinitely good, he's infinitely in control, and so we can infinitely trust him. If there was anyone to whom it was right and good to submit our lives to, isn't it God? The rest of this section, the last couple verses, just unpacks what it looks like to live a life in submission to God. See, don't mistake this reality. Grace is an amazing gift, but it's received along the path of obedience. He's gonna walk out for us these commands. These are imperatives. These are, James telling us, here's how you live out and appropriate this gift of grace. So you can't treat grace like that gift you get at Christmas that you don't really want, but you don't feel like you can take back or throw away. So you just kind of stuff it in a back closet. If you do that with God's grace, it'll never be utilized in your life. This is a gift that's meant to be opened and used and it never runs out. This is what it looks like. He says in verse 7b, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, the devil's primary purpose in this world is to separate God and man. This verse promises us if we will resist him, he will flee from us. See, whatever power Satan may have had or has now, the believer can trust that in Christ, we've been given the ability to overcome that power. Christ has crippled Satan and the final decisive blow is coming. And so for now, we have the power to resist his temptation and the promise that if we will resist, he will flee. So it's not a question of ability or power. It's a question of desire. Do you actually want to resist the temptation? You have the power to. He cannot overcome you or overwhelm you. The question is, do you want to resist the enemy's temptation. And coupled with that truth is this other promise. James tells us if we draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Isn't that a soul-satisfying promise? You don't have to wonder, if I reach out to God, will he leave me hanging? Will he no-show on me? The answer is no. If you reach out to God, he will receive you. So how do we draw near to God? Practically speaking, this comes through prayer and spending time in his word. See, often we want to reverse it the other way around. We want to feel his presence before we've actually drawn near to him. But James is telling us the order works like this. Grace is given to those who put their feet on the path of obedience. Draw near to him and recognize he will draw near to you. That's a promise that you can hang your soul on. Look at verse 8b. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
See, James is telling us that living a life of holiness matters, right? It's not legalistic. It's not empty pietism to live a godly life. We've got to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. But don't forget the beautiful gospel order here. See, we often, if we were writing this, we would have written, cleanse your hearts, cleanse your hands, and then you can draw near to God, right? No, no, no. Do you notice before the cleansing happenings, the drawing and the coming near to God happens? That's how grace works. Logic might suggest that we've got to clean up our life before we can draw near to God, but that's logic. That's not grace. Grace says we come to God in our filth and then from a place of love, from a place of acceptance, then we begin to walk in holiness. That's the gospel. If you leave with nothing else, leave with that today. Our hands, when he says cleanse our hands, that represents outward behaviors. So look at your life. What behaviors in your life need to be um, cleansed? And the heart represents the internal attitude that drives our behavior. Both internal and external need to be looked at. James is saying don't neglect personal holiness and godly living. If you do, your life will be fractured, disjointed, unwhole, and divided. You cannot live in a perpetual state of conflicted interests. To neglect personal holiness is to flirt with the pleasures of this world. And James already told us that spiritual adultery, that kind of adultery kills intimacy with God. Verse nine, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, James isn't anti-joy. He's not anti-laughter. That's not what he's talking about. What he is saying is that we should have a genuine, heartfelt grief over our sin. Have you ever received an apology that felt canned, right? Rehearsed. They didn't mean it. It was insincere. They were just going through the motions so they could just get back to normal. It's hard to take those, those apologies seriously, right? That's what James is saying. If you sin and go, hey God, I'm really sorry about that. I don't know I shouldn't have done it. Moving on. That's an insincere kind of apology. It's not genuine confession. We need to realize our sin deeply grieves the heart of God. James is telling us, take sin seriously. Take repentance seriously. Let me ask you, do you have a casual attitude towards your sin? Is it just no big deal? Have you taken God's grace and his forgiveness for granted? Like you just know, I know it's gonna be there. And here's the scandal of the gospel. It is there for you, even when we take it for granted. But here's my question. What does that say about our attitude when we presume upon his grace to forgive our sins instead of relying upon his grace to overcome our sin? Right? He gives more grace, not so that we'll just bank on his forgiveness, but that we'll rely on his power and the grace he's given us to overcome when we face the gruesome reality of our sin and mourn over it and grieve over it, that's when we can actually start to put it to death. Grieve, receive God's grace, and start to walk in holiness, intimacy, and joy. Finally, James says, humble yourselves before the Lord. And here's the promise. He will exalt you. James kind of brings it all together in this summary statement. 
He's told us the summary or the, the struggle uh, of our souls is pride. But if we will actively humble ourselves before the Lord, we will be exalted. We will be lifted up. If you will recognize your spiritual poverty, that you bring nothing to the table and that all you need is yours in Christ, that kind of humility leads to your exaltation. So you don't have to lift yourself up like pride does. You can never lift yourself high enough anyway. But if you'll humble yourself, you feel get low before the Lord, he will lift you up. This is exactly what Christ did for us. Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, he says that Christ, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Christ humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Paul's saying is that Jesus emptied himself of every entitlement and never took a prideful step a day in his life. Though he was fully God, though he actually deserved to be worshipped, to be exalted, he humbled himself, humiliated himself. To, be, to being crucified on a cross. See, we can be exalted precisely because Christ was humiliated. He went lower than we'll ever go, drank deep the poison of our pride so he could extend that great grace to us. Grace is available in full for us because he purchased it for us on the cross. Humility is possible for us because he broke the curse of our pride. So family, let's humble ourselves before the Lord. James does not hold out the life of humility as some unattainable reality, but he's saying it can be yours in Christ. Let's run that race together. Let's walk that path of humility together. It's a gift. We can live that way because God gives us the grace to do so. I wanna close by uh, reading an excerpt from a prayer from the Valley of Vision. Here's what he says. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is is the place of vision.